The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right. Um, I didn't really write much of an introduction for this message because I feel like we really just need to get right into it. And it's all because of one word that exists in this section of Scripture. It's the word justice, a word that Jesus uses in the passage. And I wonder if we really know what justice is, at least if we really understand justice uh, from the perspective of God, how he sees justice, the, the way that God would have us understand it. And I'll let you know that doing justice, and this is why it's important to us today, doing justice is such an important part, an essential part, really, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, one verse from the Old Testament, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right into this. But Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Doing justice is the, is the core, the essential part of what we're going to look at today in Luke 11. So let's pray together and then we'll get right into the text. Father, we've already heard a prayer that speaks about our desperation and um, for those of us who understand this, we are desperate again for your word. We need to hear from you. We need to have your Holy Spirit uh, teach us how we might be uh, better at reflecting the image of Christ and to be salt and light in this dark world. Father, we know this world is so very broken. And we know there is so much pain and we need your hope. It's the only hope. So speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right, Jesus uh, tells you what you ought to do as a Christ follower, and, um, and it's not enough to be religiously observant. Now, what you're doing here right now, uh, being part of the worship service here at Harvest, that's, um, that's a religious observance. It's, it's part of what we do, but we have to understand that uh, we need to come with the right motives and the right heart, and that it's not enough that you just come and do something religious. That's what Jesus' point is here, having religion in your life, not nearly enough. Notice what Jesus said here. We'll get to the text now. This is Luke 11, verse 37, and I'm going to kind of read and comment as we go through this, and I'm going to comment specifically about religious observance and what we see here because Jesus is speaking to religious leaders who were overseers of a religious system that, listen, they just weren't willing to see changed. They were keepers of an institution, and to them, the institution was above all things, even though their very own Messiah was right in front of them. And so, Luke eleven thirty seven. 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. So this is nice. It's going to be a little dinner party. 
okay, Jesus and these religious leaders, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It's an interesting way to start a dinner party. Wouldn't you agree? Let's just go right after it. Let's just say it the way it is. The Pharisee's upset that he didn't ceremonially wash himself. Now, how many people would agree it's a great idea to wash your hands before dinner? How many people would agree with this? Very few children ever raise their hand for that one. But, but parents are always teaching their kids, wash your hands before dinner. That's not the washing we're talking about here. This isn't mom telling the kids, wash your hands before dinner. This is a ceremonial thing that the Pharisee is so uh, concerned with here. Jesus goes on to say, verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. If, if it's flowing from the inside out, it's going to be good. But you're so, what he's saying is, you're so concerned with the outward performance of religion that you've missed what's really going on on the inside of a person. And so it was outward observance to the neglect of inward piety and uh, these rules that they were adding, in fact, there's, there's more coming. He says in verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. We'll just pause there. All this outward observance, they were so particular about it. And, and here's the thing you need to know about the washing before the meal and this tithing of these small little crops that was going on. None of that was in the Bible. None of it was in the Bible. The washing before the meal, the, the tithing of these little, not in the Bible. These are all things that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had added on top of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to get you to respond except this way, all right? The appropriate response to this, if you agree with me, is a subtle nod of the head. That is it. But how many of you went to a church where they taught the Bible but then gave you a list of rules beside it and said a good Christian believes the Bible and does all of these things too. How many of you were part of that church? Just indicating, I didn't say raise your hand. I said, do not raise your hand. I said, nod subtly. Just nod subtly if that, if that was your church. And all of these rules that are adding, this is exactly what these religious leaders were doing. Notice verse 42, we'll pick that up again. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. This verse 42, we're going to spend a lot of time in. These you ought to have done without, without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They, they're, they're, they're all about themselves. They're about their leadership. This is my position. Look at me. Look how powerful I am. It's a very self-centered thing this religion of the Pharisees. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. And, and so the grave for the Jew, the thing was, if they ever went and touched a grave, they became ceremonially unclean. And so they were very careful to mark graves so that they would always know, so that they'd never walk on a grave, never touch a grave, because they would see it and know immediately they'd be unclean. 
But now what these Pharisees were doing is it was like all these unmarked graves were around and they were leading people to walk over all these unmarked graves and they were actually on the inside, even though outwardly they were kind of giving the appearance of being clean, they were actually unclean because they were walking all over these unmarked graves that Jesus is using as an example. Well, then it switches from the Pharisees Verse 45, one of the lawyers, and these aren't like lawyer lawyers, like we understand lawyers. These are religious lawyers or often in the New Testament called scribes, and these were teachers of the law. So these are like the teaching pastors for the Jewish people. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And I can just picture Jesus saying, good, they didn't miss the fact that I was including them in this. Right, because you, you don't want to deliver a line and then have some people not realize it's actually for them. And Jesus was delivering a message not just for the Pharisees, but also for these, uh, these teachers. Um, yes, I'm insulting you too, correct. And he goes on in verse 46. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens, hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I mean, you're, you're, you're lazy spiritually, you're demanding all this stuff of the people, you're not leading, this is religion now, the kind of religion Jesus is talking about, just observance. They're telling the people what to do, but not leading the way themselves. That is poor leadership. It's not even leadership at all, really. Verse 47, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now you're saying that you honor the prophets and look how great this prophet was and we're gonna build a memorial to this prophet and we're gonna tell people how great this prophet was but they're actually descendants of the people who killed the prophets and they're no different than their descendants who killed them. There's no respect and no honor for the word of God. Verse 48, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Why? Why all of that? Why is all that being pinned on them? Verse 42, woe to you lawyers, you teachers of the Bible. Woe to you, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. You had the Bible. You're teachers of the Bible, and you kept the true knowledge about God away from the people and made it so hard on them with your own rules. Now, not surprisingly, after the meal... Verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Their whole motive is to stop him from doing what he's doing, to catch him in something so as to discredit him and end his ministry. Now, all through that, you heard the characteristics of of just plain observant religion without heart. Now, religion is not the problem. And, and sometimes I've heard this phrase, you've heard it too, that it's, it's, 
It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. How many people have heard that phrase? It's, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And there's a problem with that phrase. And the problem is that there is a good kind of religion that the Bible affirms and there's a bad kind of religion. So to paint all religion as wrong, that's a problem. Religion is not the problem unless it is religion for religion's sake. That becomes the problem. And that's what these Pharisees and these scribes, these lawyers, that's what they had going on. But there is a good kind of religion, and we see it, in fact, it's defined for us in James chapter 1, verse 27. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and man is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James defines for us, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, he defines for us what a good kind of religion looks like, what he calls a pure and undefiled religion. And it's, it's, it's this. Visit orphans and widows. That's one part of it. There's two halves. But to visit orphans and widows. Now that's a, a bit of a catchphrase to kind of tell us about um, or lead us to an understanding of all the marginalized of society. It's not just about orphans and widows, but anybody who's vulnerable, anybody who's on the margins of society. And we're heading towards this idea that Jesus wants us to be doing justice. And that's what James 1.27 defines as pure and undefiled religion, at least one half of it. And then he says, and... Secondly, to keep oneself unstained for the world. Personal righteousness. Walk with God. My holiness before the Lord. What's that look like? Both of those things together define pure and undefiled religion. And the Pharisees, to some extent, were working on the second half of that in the sense that they were working on keeping themselves unstained from the world, but going about it in entirely the wrong way, completely unsuccessful at actually achieving that, and completely ignoring the first part of doing justice. That's what Jesus is taking them on for. And so we understand if there is, by the Scripture's definition, a pure and undefiled religion, then we would also understand, would it not be true, that there is an impure and defiled religion. If one exists, so does the other. And in fact, that's what we're seeing in Luke 11. An impure and defiled religion. Now, if you've been here for any time at all and you've heard me ever speak on this, and I think I've mentioned it already multiple times through Luke's gospel, I'm actually not that concerned about Pharisees and religious lawyers from the first century. I have very little concern for them. First of all, they're all dead. None of them exist anymore, so I'm not that concerned with them, but I'm super concerned about us. We're getting the Word of God open in front of us today to ask ourselves some questions. And it's super tempting sometimes to get into the Scriptures and see those Pharisees and to be the good Christ followers that we are and say, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not like those Pharisees. And to, and to look at them and wag our fingers at them and go, man, I, those Pharisees, I'm glad I'm not like them. And as soon as we say those things and we just dismiss it and say, bad Pharisees, boo, Pharisees. As soon as we do that, what happens? We become the, we become the Pharisees. Wagging our fingers at someone else, thinking we're superior to someone else. And what Jesus, why is this in the scripture? Ask yourself the question when you're reading the text. Why is this passage here? Why am I reading this today? Because he wants us to ask the same question of ourselves. 
What he's pressing on the Pharisees, he wants us to consider, is that me? Am I the one who's just religiously observant? Have I neglected to do justice? Is my religion empty and cold and callous? You and I need to hear what Jesus is saying. And we need to think about what we're doing here. Because as awesome as this is, all of the elements of what we put together here in terms of a worship service on the weekend or, or the kind of ministry that we have through the week, everything we do, I, I need you to know, it's not by accident, it's very intentional. We've searched the scriptures, we've looked at it, and, and we've sought to put together the kind of ministry, the kind of church that is as close to a New Testament model as we can possibly fashion. But any single element of what we're doing can be done in a religiously observant way without any heart being attached to it. In other words, maybe some of you came here today because you had to. You felt obligation because it's what you do. It's because of what you've always done. And, and that's not a good motivation. Maybe some of you sang the songs because that's what you do. Maybe you gave an offering because you feel obligation to do so. That it's, it's part of my religious observance. Maybe, maybe you served this week or you're going to serve in the next service and you're doing that out of obligation. I do it because I have to. Maybe you read the Bible this week because your reading plan told you to, but not because you wanted to. And whenever we slip into anything like that, it becomes mere religious observance. And it's exactly what Jesus is condemning here. It's ritual without heart. It's being a member without really embracing the mission. It's empty religion. And Jesus calls it out. And he tells us what we ought to do as a true Christ follower. It's not enough to be religiously observant, but you have to do justice. That's the first part of pure and undefiled religion. You have to do justice. Back to verse 42, and you see this phrase. Jesus says that they neglect justice. And he uses the word knowing that as soon as he says it, they understand how theologically packed that word is. The, the meaning of it is not lost on the original audience, but it might be lost on us. And so, let me just offer you this. Doing justice, doing justice according to the Bible is to serve the interests, needs, and to support the cause of the most vulnerable and marginalized of our society and to do so knowing that it reflects the very heart of God. Doing justice according to the Bible is to serve the interest needs and to support the cause of the most vulnerable and marginalized of our society and to know that by doing so it reflects the very heart of God.
I wanted to get this right, and I, I, I read uh, some things that Tim Keller, many of you will know that name. He's a New York City pastor and author, very, very highly esteemed. And in his book, Generous Justice, he deals with this concept of justice, and I want to share some things that he wrote in his book. And um, the word uh, justice in the Old Testament, uh, of course, from the Hebrew, is the word mishpat. And it occurs in its various forms through the Old Testament more than 200 times. And the root definition of mishpat is essentially this, to treat people with equity. Mishpat is giving people what they are due, uh, to give people their rights, what they have a right to. And that includes kind of two uh, components to it. On the one side is um, the mishpat of God or his justice refers to punishment. And so if uh, someone is a criminal and they do something wrong and um, they hurt someone or, they, or, or some property is damaged and punishment is meted out for that, uh, that is the mishpat of God. So punishment on the one side, on the other side of it, uh, there is a protection and care for a person. So it's both of those things. It's, it's punishment and it's protect, protection and care. And um, over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the care and cause, listen to these four groups, the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Keller notes that these are called the quartet of the vulnerable. These are people who had no social power, and the mishpat or justness of a society, in fact, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Uh, this is a just society, because in this society, they care for widows, and orphans, and immigrants, and the poor. Therefore, it's a just society. And we could use the same measure to, 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 to gauge whether or not Harvest Bible Chapel is a mishpat church. Is it a church that's doing justice? Is it a, a church of justice? And we'll be judged according to how we treat these four groups. Any neglect to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but actually a violation of mishpat. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a miss. It's, it's not a weakness of our church. If we're not doing justice, enacting the mishpat of God, then we are failing God. It's a sin for us to ignore the justice of God. Because God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. And Keller says, so should we. He concludes by saying that's what it means to do justice. You see, God's heart for justice is not rooted in some sense that he has that that's a major need for us. But his sense of justice is actually rooted in his own heart because God gets it. God understands as, as powerful as he is, as, 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 as om, omniscient as he is, all-knowing and everywhere present and awesome as God is, 
He sent his son, the father sent the son to take on human flesh and dwell amongst us. He entered into, by doing that, he entered into human condition so that the prophet Isaiah said that he is actually acquainted with all of our griefs so he understands the plight of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the poor. He gets it. His son not only entered into the human condition, but then he allowed sinful creation to take advantage of him. And in what is history's most grievous account of injustice, the sinless Son of God was unjustly accused, unjustly arrested, unjustly tried in an illegal trial according to Jewish law. He was handed over to pagans who condemned him, convicted him, who tortured him, and who crucified him. God gets injustice. And we do justice because we're his children and he has a heart for the broken. God is, according to Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. And if that's his thing, then it's our thing. Agreed? I mean, if it's God's thing, it's our thing. Correct? If it's God's thing, it's our thing. And if God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of orphans, and widows, then, then that's our thing. And Well, that big biblical foundation uh, laid down, it's really important for us to see how that plays out practically in some of the justice issues that we're facing today. And, and even as I say issues, I understand this, that, that they're not issues, they're people. Some who are actually even among us right now and so we start to think about this, and there are all kinds of justice issues that are in front of us. Let me just list some of these, and we'll put them on the screen. Abortion, accessibility for disabled people, environmental issues, euthanasia and physician-assisted dying, LGBTQ rights, poverty, income inequality, homelessness, Racial issues that include the mistreatment of the indigenous or First Nation peoples of our own country, immigration, refugees, religious minority rights, the sex trade and slavery, which in North America, those things are tied together, women's equality, the plight of orphans, and an issue that I'm really just starting to understand is, is greater than we imagine, child sexual abuse. It's rough out there for a lot of people. And I wish we could cover each one of 
these, but time won't allow that. Many of the principles that we're going to lay down and you're going to see how this flows for us and what God has put on our hearts to do so that we would do justice, so that we would be affirmed by God for the mishpat that exists amongst us. These principles are going to apply and be transferable to all of them. But again, let me highlight a few of them and deal with them only in in summary. The first is this. Let's talk about sanctity of life issues, including abortion and physician-assisted dying. And I will say this, that the, at least as God has laid it on our hearts, the point of what God is seeking for us to do is not to shout out our political views or our moral position. We have not been a church that has taken a megaphone and shouted it out saying, this is what we're for. This is the moral stand, and all of Canada should be like us. That's not really where we've landed. And if someone is uh, before the Lord, and that's what they feel they need to do to defend the cause of the vulnerable, that's fine, but that's just not been our thing. We do want to help the vulnerable. Ten years ago, our response uh, as a church, I was preaching a message on the sanctity of life, and It became very apparent to me we needed to actually just not preach a message on it, but we needed to do something about it. And as I prayed and studied it and looked at it, I felt like the thing that we needed to do and what our elders were convinced of was not that we needed to put a petition at the back of the church and hand it to the MP and take it to Ottawa and read another position to try and bring in a law that no one is ever going to enact in this country. So it wasn't about a petition. It wasn't about making posters or heading to Ottawa in busloads to protest on the lawn of Parliament Hill. That wasn't that. But we really felt we needed to do something proactive and positive to help actual women who are facing unplanned pregnancies and are abortion-minded. To actually help women to actually see that babies are born that wouldn't be born because Barry had a void in the area of crisis pregnancy centers. And so we decided to start one that would proactively, positively affirm the sanctity of life in our city. To, to talk to women who were facing these unplanned pregnancies and to walk with them the entire way Not just telling them abortion is wrong, not putting sensationalized and horrific pictures in front of them to guilt them into something, which doesn't work, by the way. But to tell them, hey, you know what? You can do this, and we're going to walk with you through the entire prenatal phase. And when you have that baby, we're going to be there for you if you need us. In the birthing process. And after the baby is born, we're not going to leave you alone. Now that you have the baby and our job is done, but we're actually going to walk with you postpartum and help you be a mom. That's what we decided to do. For 10 years now, that's exactly what's been going on in this city. And Kathy Peterson, the director of the Pregnancy Resource Center, and, and I could take the rest of the message to tell you how blessed and impressed I am by Kathy's leadership. But she said this to me uh, this week when we were talking about it. She said simply, when women feel supported, they are more likely to carry to term. When, When women have justice done 
to them. Care and protection. When they know someone's going to walk with them, we have a much higher likelihood that 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 baby's going to be born. That's the kind of care we want to bring to this. That's doing justice. And the euthanasia question is, is, in some senses, it's an old question and it's been around for a while, but fairly new for Canadians given that we have a new law coming. Our court struck down the existing law uh, more than a year ago. They instructed Parliament to bring a new law. It was touch and go at the end of the last session. Uh, the Senate uh, held it up a little bit, uh, but the law passed and will come into effect soon. And uh, we are going to have a law. Uh, it's not going to be the one that we would necessarily choose, but we need to understand the country that we live in. And I don't want this to sound defeatist at all. But I went to the office of Alex Nuttall, the uh, member of parliament for um, Barry Springwater Ormadante. We had a great meeting this week, and Alex is a follower of Christ and seeking to represent his constituents well in Ottawa. But we need to understand we had a good talk about this, and we live in a small L, I'm not talking about the political party, but a small L liberal democracy. That's where we live. And as the followers of Jesus Christ who have a far more conservative view of things and a more conservative kind of social, moral understanding of things, uh, stronger principles in those areas, we have to understand we are now the micro-minority in our country. We're not just a minority. We're a micro-minority. That the major, of the major political parties the one that we would consider even to be the furthest right. The social conservatives are only a small portion of that caucus. And there are hardly any social conservatives left at all in any of the other parties. We're, we're not, we're not I don't, again, I don't want to sound defeatist, we're not changing the country. Not through political means. And so we're left with this idea, what then can we do to bring about the mishpat of God in this country? How do we respond with justice as the followers of Christ when it comes to euthanasia, when we know there's going to be a law and some people are going to choose it and some doctors are going to be involved in it? That's the new reality. Well, we're going to do it positively and proactively and we're going to care for the dying and we're going to be involved in palliative care. We're going to get some of you volunteering at the hospice. We're going to esteem the elderly. We're going to esteem the mentally ill and help them through so that they're not choosing this. We're going to stand up for the rights of those who are developmentally handicapped so that, so that they're not exposed to a law that's unjust. We have to be the voice for that. And we have to practically care for those and show our esteem and value of those who are in those marginalized groups and who are vulnerable to this. I think you'd agree with me. I could say a lot more about both of those things, but we need to move on. Let's talk also about homelessness, poverty, and income inequality. 
I like Proverbs 19, 17 here. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. You want to lend a little money to the Lord? Lord, do you need a little something? Who wouldn't want to do that? Well, then give some to the poor. Because God's heart is for them. And he will repay him for his deed. There's a reward that comes back on that. There's a man, a family that comes to our church, and Nino is... um, very involved with the poor and the addicted in our community. He's been doing that for about seven years now. He contributed to the Facebook survey that I had up this week about this message. He said, he said this of his work among the poor and the addicted of our city. He's going into some of the toughest housing areas of our city and working with some challenging people. And he said he's doing this, this is a quote, not by my choice, but by his word and as he led me. And this is hard work among the poor and the addicted. It's hard work because there's very little reward that comes back from the people you're working with. And it seems to be this never-ending stream of need. Jesus made the comment that the poor you're always going to have with you. So if you help someone out of poverty, be assured someone else is filling the gap. And so it can be difficult because you just get a sense we're never making any progress and there's still homeless people and Why is that? It's not an answer we're really going to come to. And so it's hard work. And on the streets downtown and in various neighborhoods, townhouses and apartment buildings, and in the vicinity of our new property at 7 George Street, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of hopelessness. And Nino said this, we can all play a little part of God's bigger picture. And this is how we we have to frame it this way. We can all play a little part in God's bigger picture and the question will be, will you be his hands and feet? That's his phrase. Will you be the hands and feet of God? Well, then I want to talk about the sex trade and slavery. And I'm going to spare you the details of some of the things that I've read on this. But I've read multiple articles over the last several weeks about something that's very troubling that's happening in, the, in major cities right across North America, including Toronto. Uh, charges related to this uh, were laid just a few weeks ago. But young teen girls from good homes, middle to upper middle class homes who have everything given to them, and uh, yet there can be a struggle at home, teenage angst, challenges between a parents and child, and the girl decides that she's going to leave home on her own at 15 or 16 years of age and kind of strike out into the world, and she makes her way to another city, and while there, she's kind of picked up by somebody who watches for vulnerable teen girls. And the guy befriends her, a meal, can I help you with this? Do you have a place to stay? In some scenarios, the guy becomes her boyfriend and she loves the fact that she's being cared for. And then he rapes her and then he enslaves her by threatening her and her family and he puts her in a hotel room for 12 hours a day while she services the needs of men who reply to ads online. That's not just a story. That's what's happening in Toronto. That's what's happening throughout North American cities. 
we're at the ground level of launching a ministry called The Cove, which is going to provide a safe place for vulnerable teens in our city to find hope. We're grateful for some church members here who have a real heart for that and are pouring themselves into it. I don't know if that exists in Barrie. I don't know if it's ever happened here. But we know that there are a lot of teens who are in troubling situations who are vulnerable to drugs and to the sex trade, who are suffering from mental illness and who need just a safe place to be able to go, where some people who are really serious about the mishpat of God are going to help them and care for them and protect them. Kathy added this, Kathy Peterson from the PRC, she added this, that a lot of these issues are intertwined, the things that I'm talking about here, that abortion-minded women are often trapped in a cycle of poverty and are very often abuse survivors themselves. And so the more we can do to pour ourselves out into the community and to be reaching those who are vulnerable, we're going to be actually bringing the mishpat of God to various categories that we're talking about all at the same time. Now, I want to talk about one more, uh, the one that has received the most amount of press coverage, uh, say, over the last few months or the last year or so, and that is a racial tension. And in addition to what, I, what I'm going to call run-of-the-mill racism, run-of-the-mill racism is just uh, I'm uncomfortable with people of color. Run-of-the-mill racism is that I have some entrenched thought patterns that make me prejudiced even though I wouldn't admit it. That I say things that are inappropriate. That's run-of-the-mill racism and we're naive if we think that only exists south of the border because it exists right here. And sometimes it's so subtle that we don't even know it. We don't understand that we're racist in the way that we're treating those of other racial groups. So it's alive and well, but it includes also racial tension, the plight of the indigenous or First, pe First Nations people of our country, and really the abhorrent way that our government and many churches who evangelized amongst our First Nations people were treating them. Immigration issues, which are fresh and new in our city, and the issue of refugees. And I, and I want to say, before I say anything else about this, but I want to say that I was thinking about, I was thinking about the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 9. And I'm, I'm just thinking about, this is, what, this is what the 24 elders who are gathered around the throne of God and, and the, living, the four living creatures are all there and they're worshiping the lamb and they say, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You ransomed them all. So when we get to heaven, all of the races will be obvious to us and they're all going to be there because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus redeems all races, we ought to love all races. Amen? There should be dialogues if we're struggling with this. We should ask questions. We should seek mutual, mutual understanding where there's tension or ignorance. 
And in order to enact the mishpat of God, we have to treat all with equity. And I'll declare it clearly right here and right now that as Barry becomes increasingly diverse, and right now the numbers show that more than 90% of Barry is still white. But I'm going to let you know that's changing rapidly, that it's going to look more and more in Barry like it does in the GTA currently. And as Barry becomes more and more diverse, I want this place among these people to be the safest place in the city for a person of color to be. That's what this church needs to be. Harvest needs to be leading the way as the followers of Christ enacting the mishpat of God so that there is no doubt that not only are we standing together on the last day in the throne room of God praising the Lord all races, we're doing that now as best we can. And that God would be pleased with that. All must be treated with equity. And I, I saw this story in the Calgary Herald from, it's about um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. We don't know who our justices are, but Beverly McLaughlin is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And she said something really interesting. By the way, I'll just say this about her. There's very little that we agree with. Um, or have in common with the Chief Justice. She's very liberal, very liberal. And most of the things that we would talk about on the social um, conservative side, she's opposed and actually helped to bring in legislation to pull our country toward being much more of a liberal democracy. And um, that said, there's something she said here that I really do agree with. And she said it well. We cannot delegate the business of building an inclusive society to the government or the courts. That's interesting coming from a judge. They can help, but they can never be the foundation. Now she tells this story that a few years ago, uh, she was back in her hometown of Pincer Creek, Alberta. And uh, they were celebrating the centennial of that, of that town. And this man named Eric came up to her and he gave her a gift of earrings, mother of pearl earrings, he handed them to her, and, and she didn't know that she'd ever met him before. And um, he was a, an indigenous man, a First Nations. And he said, I'm giving these to you out of honor and respect for your parents. He said, you see, when we were both children, my dad and your dad were both doing some work together. They were doing some business, and my family had driven over to your house, and we were in your driveway. We were all sitting in the car while our dads were talking. And your mom came out the front door and, and it was your dad's birthday and she invited us all in for tea and cake. And I want you to know how much of an impact that made on my life because it was the first time I had ever been in a white person's house. McLaughlin was struck hard by that, impacted by it, and it led her to conclude, she said, it affected me very profoundly, but it led her to conclude that the most basic responsibility for creating an inclusive society rests with individuals who are willing to invite somebody into their home. She said, I understood how the simple acts of everyday people could make a profound difference. 
in this matter of race. And she's right. And she's a liberal judge saying that. But when those words echo in my ears as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I recognize that if it's, if it's a bunch of individuals doing things that are going to help us be this more inclusive society, when I, when I think about those individuals actually being the followers of Christ doing this, it underscores, in fact, the most basic responsibility that we have. We are not first. I'm proud of my country. I'm proud of my country. I'm proud to be a Canadian. But I am not first a Canadian seeking to build an inclusive society. I'm a Christ follower who's seeking to enact the mishpat of God. I'm not raising the maple leaf, but the cross of Christ over people who need to know that they're loved. And to that all, Jesus says, these things, verse 42, these things you ought to have done. You should be doing justice. Well-known African-American pastor Tony Evans said this, speaking on the race issues facing America right now. He said, the church and only the church has been given the keys to the kingdom. And so we have unique access to God that no one else has. The chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada doesn't have the keys of the kingdom, but we do. And he said, it's about time more churches started using those keys to unlock doors so that we get greater heavenly intervention into our, into our earthly catastrophe. And so our prayer cry comes from the prophet Amos. This is what we should pray. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And to come back to something, you might be feeling overwhelmed at this point in the sense that, okay, I get it. I should do it. I should be doing justice. But where? There's so many needs. How do I get started? And, and Nino helps, helps us with that. And, and we could just even say where he says, like, just, just do your small part. And I've said this before. No one person can do everything. But everybody can do something. So what justice issue will you support? Where will your, will your hands and feet go? How will you engage, listen to this now, how will you engage with the sharing of your wealth and the sharing of yourself? Because doing the mishpat of God is going to be costly. And some great things are already happening around here, starting points, some people already engaged in a meaningful way. I believe, I haven't studied this, but I believe that we are at, ver at the very least reflecting on, a racial, on the racial side of things, that we are at the very least reflecting the diversity of our city as it currently is. I believe we might even be slightly ahead. And I would hope that that would always be true. Our ministries such as Harvest Kids, Awana, and our youth ministries are really, again, in a very proactive way, seeking to protect and cherish children so that they don't fall into some of the things that we've talked about here. Our partnerships with the Food Bank, the Pregnancy Resource Center, 
with the Cove Teen Ministries and other community agencies are all good. There's more to do and more of you could be involved. Many of you have contributed to our 5,000 Hours Project, that our initiative that we set out last Thanksgiving, trying to add 5,000 hours of service into our community partners. And we're sitting around, I think maybe just over, just under the 2,000 hour mark right now. We haven't quite reached halfway even. And I'm just gonna tell you, once we reach 5,000 hours, and I believe that that's gonna happen, we're gonna reset that and hope to do the next 5,000 in less time than we did the first 5,000. But if that's not something you've been involved with yet, then you need to go to our website and check that out and get engaged. We need to do justice. Jesus tells us what we have to do as true Christ followers. It's not enough to be religiously observant, but you have to do justice. And then this, you have to love God. Now, by choice, we spent a lot of time on the justice side. And um, this message has already gone long. And it means that in some respects, I'm cheating this because it would appear by the little amount of time I'm going to give it that it's not equally weighted, but it's both. We can't simply do justice and think that that's enough. It's, it's not just about social justice. It has to also be about loving God. You have to love God. And in, in 1142, he says, Jesus says, in addition to the neglect of justice, they had neglected the love of God. And in the Bible, justice and righteousness are often paired together. To love God is to devote your life to his glory. It encompasses godly, holy, righteous living, living ethically, having strong moral values flowing from the foundation of Jesus Christ. It means personally practicing the spiritual disciplines with your whole heart, serving according to your gifts and your passions. It means having relationships with people that reflect the ways of Christ, redemptive relationships with people. It's passionate worship. It's generous engagement with the mission. That's what we ought to be doing. We're going to worship in just a moment. But I'm thinking back to that Revelation 5 scene. Are you with me on that? The 24 elders, the four living creatures, the multitudes of the people of God before the throne of God, and the mishpat of God, the righteousness and justice of God, fully on display in that scene men and women standing equal before God in that scene people of all races together their social and economic status erased age meaningless physical and mental disabilities gone forever a thousand tongues singing our great Redeemer's praise. Amen? Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.